Hi everyone! Before we start with this episode, we have a pretty big announcement to make. We're having our very first live show. Yes! It's going to be our season one recap episode, which we'll record with you on Zoom. We'll entertain you with our usual banter, and of course, we'll open the floor for you if you have any questions. We'll be hosting this on Saturday, April 17th at 3 p.m. Eastern. For all the details, you can head to the link in the episode description or in the bio of any of our social media accounts. You'll be able to register for the show. There's no event fee for this, but we are going to provide a PayPal link for a pay which you can if you're able to. It'll just help us get some more equipment and keep the show running smoothly and sounding better. Spots are limited, so don't wait too long. Head over to the link in our episode description or on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok at Carrying Wayward and register now. We hope to see you there. Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Vigourou. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 1, Episode 20, Dead Man's Blood. Let's get this show on the road. Hi everyone. Due to the nature of this episode, we will be briefly discussing sexual assault in critical time. If that's not something you want to hear us discuss, you can skip critical time or this episode, either for now or entirely. We really don't mind. We just want you to feel safe and take care of yourselves. So Drew, Dead Man's Blood, what did we think? I really enjoyed it. I was, I guess I kind of went in expecting big things just because I know we're literally three away from the season finale. Yeah. So I figured something a little more story heavy was going to happen. And I like what we got. I really like what we got in this one. I'm having trouble with this episode. How about I recap it first, let everyone else catch up who might need a little refresher, and then you can tell me where uh, where your problems lie with this one. Yes, well, let's start with that. So how about I give you a two-minute recap for this episode? Count me in. All right. Three, two, one, go. We open on a guy sitting in a bar writing in his journal. Very John-like. I actually thought it was John when I first saw it, and then it like pans up, and you're like, this isn't John. Uh, he spots co- group coming into bar, gets spooked, runs away. Group from bar breaks into his place. I pretty much immediately assume these must be vampires, although they're breaking all the rules we'll get to later. They unfortunately defeat this man who we later learn was uh, John's mentor and uh, teacher. They, they had a falling out and they steal from him a very important gun. We then cut to the brothers trying to figure out what to do. They eventually stumble across the man killed in house possible bear attack to get there and figure out that it's probably something more. They find some hidden numbers, leads them to a mailbox. They find a letter for JW. Who could it be? Knock on a window, it's John. Literally, it's for him and it's him. Surprise, I actually screamed. Uh, We then have our first real proper team of episodes of The Boys and Their Dad. They learn about vampires and how their lore is very different from what we expected. They go on a hunt to get this gun back from these vampires because this gun is pretty much the Demon Slayer gun and is the coolest thing ever, although canonically has some problems. They go after the vampires. They get the gun back. They almost lose Sam, but they use the gun and they take out the lead vampire, really cheesing off one of them. And uh, they decide to team up and stay together and go after this demon finally all together as a family. Yay! What a wholesome family activity. And you had 30 seconds left, so that's wonderful. Good for you. 
Yeah, you know, I look forward to those days, you know, when me and my dad and my brother would just, you know, go out and slay a demon with a mystical gun forged outside of the continuity of time. <laughs> my usual question, did I miss anything major, anything for the long game that was uh, overlooked? You got everything in terms of the story elements. In the long game, what I will say is just that this episode is actually pretty massive, like you said, right? So first, because we find out about the cult, which becomes such an important part of the show from here on out. I, you know what, like it it has a very MacGuffin-y air to it that kind of let me believe it might be important for this season and also i know i'm breaking the fourth wall contextually here knowing that the show is really aimed at a five season run and given the limited number of bullets remaining in the weapon how much could they really do with it so the fact that it kind of stays around longer than that i'm very intrigued Oh, it stays around long. The cult is super important. The lore around the cult is very important. We are introduced to it in this episode. And I'll just say up front, I love a cool artifact. You want to throw a piece of like ancient relic into a story, whether it be like a mystic gun or a special weapon or like a talisman or something like those are just like, oh, I love those. I don't know what it is. The second reason why this episode is so massive is because this episode is really strangely very linked to the series finale. There are some things that we can't discuss today without giving away massive spoilers, so we'll really stick to this episode and this episode only, right? Like, today is not a day to compare the two episodes. We're not doing that. But I will try to throw in a couple of Easter eggs for those of us who are re-watching and who maybe haven't had the heart to come back and look at this episode. I know that it was definitely very challenging for me. So to, if, to anybody who may have some trouble with this episode, my heart goes out to you because I totally understand. Then there's also the fact that John mentions a falling out with Daniel Elkins and we'll realize that John has had many falling outs with people. That doesn't surprise me. I'm just going to put it out there. His personality, just something about it. We know about the one with Sam. Now we know about the one with Daniel Elkins. And we'll find out about, at the very least, a couple more. A falling out with somebody, unfortunately, with Elkins having been murdered before we got to really meet him. I feel like a falling out is a great, just juicy bit of exposition. You get to learn a lot about the character not directly from them, but from someone who was affected from them, and usually in a way where they can kind of speak to the positive past and then to the negative present, which I think is like a lot of great development, so I look forward to meeting more of them. You are in for a treat very soon. Yay. <laughs> so, finally, we also are finally introduced to vampires. I was so baffled the entire episode by them. How come? Until they finally get to the point where John is blatantly stating, like, expositional to the camera, to the audience, that all the lore you've heard about vampires is bull, and here's the real lore. And I'm just like, oh, you've rewritten vampires completely. I've actually brought up previously that I like them doing this. Take something that is so... I hate to use the word, but generic vampires are very bland on the surface. Like they have some great history. There's been some great stories. But from a very raw perspective, vampires are a very clean slate to apply a character to. So it makes a lot of sense. If you're going to take a thing and make it your own, vampires do kind of work. I like what they did with vampires here. I really do. 
I am a bit more reluctant because I actually like the classic vampires stories. Um, and I love classic vampires. Don't get me wrong. And yes, the vampires are living in a barn. And I will leave it at that for my folks who have seen the series finale. Okay, good. I was really wondering what the point of that comment was. I'm like, is that relevant somehow? Oh, the point of this is. comment is pure pettiness. That is all. <laughs> okay. Okay, let's move on to story time now. So as we jump into story time, we'll follow the timeline a little bit to start, and we get this nice little, just cute brotherly moment of the two of them chilling in some little diner looking for the classic, like, where do we head to next, brother? And there's a moment of, we may have some downtime, which, I mean, is gotten rid of in a matter of seconds, but in that split second, we have a great Dean moment. Dean says, we have time, why don't we head back and go see Sarah again for you? Aww. And I think it just, it ties in so well to that Dean cares so much about Sam that the idea of them having a moment of normality in their life to go do something for themselves. And his first thought is, let's go do something for you, little bro. I mean, yes, Dean deserves things and should want to do things and should want to have happiness. But it just, it just, he's so full of love and he just wants to give that love to Sam. He's parenting him, right? So he knows that Sam is going through a lot. They have downtime. Let's do something fun for you. It's kind of like when my child is having a tough time and I'm like, you know, let's go get some ice cream. <laughs> and honestly, part of me was a little sad that Sam didn't want to go or that he was just like, no, let's focus on the case. Maybe later, you know. Sam wants the conclusion. He doesn't want to take the break because the break means that's one less step towards solving this. That's true. And he wants the happy ending. He'd rather go finish this, get this thing, be over with it, and then I can swing by Sarah's and go, hey, I'm not under constant threat as much as I was a minute ago. Shall we continue this possible romantic partnership we've embellished ourselves in? I have reservations about that attitude, and I, and I understand the idea of being focused on a specific goal. I just think that when you think my life will begin when, um, then you're missing out on the life that you have now. Oh, 100%. And I think that, again, goes so strongly here is that Dean has basically accepted this is his life. So slowing down to smell the roses or get his brother back with the woman who may have interest in him is just par for the course. It's this is my life. Taking a day-long detour to do something nice for someone is normal. Whereas Sam is like, no, 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 we're on the clock. Any minute we don't spend working is time we're stealing from the company kind of thought. Are we ready to move on a little bit from this? Yes, yes, yes. Let's continue. Okay. So in this particular episode, I feel like obviously we should definitely focus on the father and son's dynamic that we're seeing. Yeah. Right? Because as much as we did learn a lot about them in Something Wicked, we've never really seen them work together on a case. If you can call right? that work together for the most part. Work alongside each other. How about that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and I mean, you're already pointing to what I'm about to discuss. So thank Twas you for segueing it so beautifully. <laughs> so if we're just laying some groundwork here, Sam is asking questions, right? How do you know? How did you find out? Are you sure? Where are we going? What is this? All of the questions are for Sam. And those questions are justified. You know, they're all equally risking their lives. They're all equally a part of this venture. And so Sam's questions are justified. But John gets irritated 
just follow me, okay? And again, like I want to link this back to this the conversation that we had with Carol Ferry in Something Wicked about how mm-hmm. John is clinging to what has worked for him in the past, which is a very strict regimented hierarchy of orders that will keep things going and rolling smoothly. And I think Dean at one point even mentions that, you know, like not the way dad runs it or something. Yeah. So it's even said in the episode. We clearly see it backfire. We actually have a evident point. Had John given them even the briefest, let's have a conversation, let's strategize, let's teach you some stuff, let's take 40 minutes on this car ride to explain everything about vampires that could be relevant. When they mm-hmm. saw a random woman tied to a pole with blood all over her lips and face, they could have maybe got put two and two together and gone, oh, she might be one of them now. And this lack of information, this lack of knowledge transferring is directly responsible for them effectively being caught and having to run away. And having the stakes brought up way higher afterwards, right? In, or- mm-hmm. in order to get the cult back. Again, if we're continuing like chronologically into this episode, after the first set of questions from Sam to John, John gets mad and then automatically lashes out at Dean about the Impala being dirty. And remember, it's been dirty since the last episode. And, I, it, and it was so striking to me that I even mentioned it. He goes, you know, I wouldn't have given you the car if I had known you wouldn't, you wouldn't have been taking care of it. Dean feels bad and Sam chuckles. Which is very strange because I feel like that's the kind of moment where Sam in a more defensive move could have been like, it usually is. We've just been a little busy. Like he would have snapped back kind of like defending his brother. Like I feel like if the roles were reversed and John had said something in that same manner to Sam, Dean would defend. But in this case, it's like a bit of a vertigo for the two of them. It's Dean just goes back into a shell of like, yes, sir. And Sam can kind of be like, haha, I'm the younger brother who doesn't get yelled at. Well, remember in the episode in Home when Missouri is parenting Dean, right? And Sam loves the way that she is talking to him. I feel like this is what's happening here, where somebody is speaking over Dean in this case. I don't want to say that John is parenting Dean because I don't think that that's what's happening. And Sam, again, loves that moment. And I think that it's to show really the difference in their relationships. I think that if John had talked this way to Sam, Dean would have intervened. And, and he does, later in the episode, but Sam doesn't because that's not his role in the revertigo that you're talking about, right? If we're, if they're going back, if they're sort of like reverting to their childhood and teenage years personas, Sam wouldn't have intervened. And as you led to, as we move forward a little bit in the episode, we do have the very confrontational moment with uh, Sam mm-hmm. and John where he literally cut, speeds ahead of him, cuts him off and blocks him in the road. And they have it out. And all Dean wants to do is, guys, we're together. We're family. Let's just be happy. Oh, that that's heartbreaking. Actually, to speak to that, I'm going to take us back just like one step. So right before that moment where Sam cuts off John on the, on the interstate, mm-hmm. Sam asks Dean if he's cool with falling in line and letting John run the show. And Dean replies, if that's what it takes. So if that's what it takes to me shows that Dean has learned that this is the only way that he can get along with his father. It's if he lets him call all the shots. It's the only way he knows how to interact with his father that will keep the peace. And that is so 
so heartbreaking when you add this idea of Dean being bisexual. Why do you do this to me? <laughs> you know, the interesting thing about bisexuality is that it's not always visible, um, especially to those who don't really know how to recognize it. We've seen Dean time and time again through the season playing up certain aspects of his sexuality and his personality and burying others. That's a line that he had to toe very carefully when it came to his father, because I can't imagine John Winchester being particularly excited at the idea of his firstborn son being bisexual. John very much has that air to him that he grew up in an age where it was so not socially accepted that even though there might be a part of him that now understands it, it's one thing to go, I accept this in the world. It's another thing to go, I accept this in my own child, which is a very unfortunate reality we see a lot today with people. And John, I mean, I know we're just, I'm sort of assuming here, but John really gives off the air of, it's fine for them, not for you. You know, there's a reason why Dean isn't open, openly or more openly showing his sexuality, right? Mm -hmm. Or only certain aspects of it. He's, at this point, doing a lot of, you know, emotions work to keep the dynamic from imploding. And we need to remember this about Dean. He just doesn't speak his truth because he's learned that speaking that truth will make the people around him love him less. And this is where, to me, like the, the archetypes of Sam and Dean are being really, really visible because Sam is being the rebellious son. Dean is the obedient one. Sam wants to be treated like an equal part of the team, whereas Dean accepts the hierarchy established by John. That all leads to that blowout moment, right? Yeah, it's like very, very like foreshadowed, but like it... Yeah, like you're waiting for it. I mean, it's the perfect storm. It's going to happen. Yeah. You know it's going to happen. It's been brewing all season. So Sam yells. John yells. We find out more about why they fell out. Dean, of course, tries to keep the peace, the ever-shrinking peace, little cool-down moment, and then John offers to give them information about the cult. So there's that offer, and then Sam mm -hmm. replies, yes, sir. It's, I think you said the word before was transactional. That's exactly what's happening. And they're giving mm -hmm. each other what they see as respect, right? So by calling yeah. him sir, Sam offers John what he sees as respect. And by offering information, John gives Sam what, he, what Sam sees as respect. And, and notice that Dean is not involved in any of this because it's something that they need to do on their own without Dean intervening. No, I thought that was a really huge moment, yeah. Sam and John are just so similar in the way that they react to things. Like when we eventually get to their little alone time in the hotel while Dean is getting the blood, there is just such a beautiful kind of kinship there that there is such a... The way I worded it in my notes were they bond over a shared traumatic event. Like literally their significant other was taken by the same thing. Like they are... They say it very clearly. We have a lot more in common than most people do. And it's very sadly true. And also, they kind of seem to sort of share a chosen one mentality, both of them. That's really interesting. I'd never thought of it that way. The way they speak about themselves and their life and how they did things and where they got to and all that, there's sort of just this air of the chosen one complex from Sam of like, this is a thing that has to be done. I want to do it as a family. Like, it affected me. And then John responds to him and it just feels like he's like yes i agree on every part of it i also feel that way about this which i just feel really 
I don't think John displays a chosen one mentality as much as Sam does, but I feel like it's still there. Like he's the like, even the way he speaks to the boys of he has to be the one to do this. He has to do it alone. Like he is the one who has he's the chosen one for his own story. It's so interesting. I had never noticed it, but you're so right. And that's another thing that Sam and John share. Wow. Thanks for pointing that out. I'm glad I could. <laughs> um, that entire scene, though, that, that entire scene, like the, when you really take a step back and look at how dark that scene is of like, what is that? What is the line right at the end where he's like, what'd you do with that college fund? Spent it on ammo. And they just laugh. And it's just like, it's so wholesome to them and to us as a fan of them. But to step back and look at that. It's like, oh, it's messed up. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it would certainly earn you a few, like a few sessions with some sort of therapist, right? It's interesting. So in that scene, what I picked up on the most, and I, I love, I, I really love that you brought um, that you brought this up about the chosen one. One thing that spoke to me, it's more where he's able to kind of verbalize what we were discussing about his military background. I feel like this was one of those moments where like something we discussed and I, again, will be very transparent to our listeners. I had a very vague understanding. A lot of my knowledge of John has come from you on the show and some of our guests. So to have these discussions and then have John blatantly like spell out what we were always debating and discussing about him. It's vindication one that we were right and that I feel like I was on the right track. The show led me, but it's it just, it was very like on the t- cars on the table. And I was like, okay, just spill the beans. Why don't you? Absolutely. And for me, the line that stuck out the most was somewhere along the line, I stopped being your father. Who then became Sam's father? <laughs> and what's interesting is that Neither John nor Sam mentions Dean in that moment, even though he's the one who had to step in to that role. So let's move on a little bit. Let's talk about Dean standing up to John. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, that was a, so right at the end of the episode, it was a very nice role reversal. This kind of everyone takes a step back and kind of reevaluates how they've been doing things. And Dean finally goes, look at what just happened today. And whether he clearly used the examples we gave or sort of just implied, things went a certain way. And because we didn't follow your orders, because we chose to go our own way, we saved you, saved the day, and got the result we wanted. He is now seeing for the first time to John, at least, he is fully admitting you're not always right. And it gives him the power to stand up to him and say, like, I demand answers. I demand to be treated more equally. Whereas Sam in that same moment is very much, I think almost because of the bonding moment he had with John is very like, you know what? I understand your position. I'm not going to step on your feet, which is why it's perfect timing for the, the role reverse. There was more room to take, right? And then ultimately, John agrees with Dean even. So it's even in a role reversal, John goes, yeah, you're right. I just want to clarify one thing, that this is the first time that we see Dean standing up to John on screen, because we later find out that that happened canonically before. That moment, I just want to scratch at that a bit, because Dean is telling John that John is more vulnerable alone than than when he's alone than when he's with them. He agrees, which is totally unheard of for John Winchester. Yeah, I think you can even see it a bit for like a second on Dean's face. Like it's a very cartoony moment of like, I'm yelling at you for a thing. And the person agrees. And it's like, well, now my yelling seems out of place. Yeah, because exactly. you're agreeing with me. It's like, I will continue to speak loudly around you just to be able to get it out. <laughs> and I mean, ultimately, they're right. Like 
we've clearly seen that John can take care of himself. He might take bigger risks while he's alone, but ultimately having backup, especially two incredibly well-trained sons, I'm trying to think of a better word to use, but it's the best word to use, is his kids, his partners, his allies, who are so well-trained and understand him, and they have an, a common background. They know each other's moves and styles. They're able to work together so well. For Sam here, when he was trying to to make his point, it was all about ego. You treat us like kids. You don't trust us. We deserve this. But for Dean, it's more about the well-being of the people around him. Why would you go and die when we can help you and we all can get out alive? Sam is chosen wanting. I need to be involved. And Dean is like, I want everyone to live happily ever after. I want to save everyone. So like you said, Sam is like, I am the chosen one. Tell me things. And Dean is like, I need to save all of you. So like you said, in the end, John agrees. But I have been wondering... Does he agree because he wants to agree or because he realized that the boys were going to anyway and like allowing them to tag along would give him more control over them? So I saw this in your notes right away and it's been sitting on me for the last couple of days and I've kind of bounced back and forth, but now... I'm convinced this is a long game for him. This is really, he, he, he realizes like, you know what? I love my boys. I trust them, but they are not going to let me wander into this alone. The only thing saying no to them does is put us all at more risk. So I don't know how much it's controlling so much as it is having safety. So remember how for John, a coping mechanism is control. And I don't mean control over like, you are a pawn and I I control you, but more having control over the parameters of a situation in order to feel safety. And I think that that's what's happening here. If the boys are close to him, then he has more control over what they can or can't do. Perhaps control isn't the right term. At least the, there are less, there are fewer variables in the situation. To, to almost make it a metaphor, it's like a game of chess. Sometimes the most strategically advanced move is not always the best move at that moment, but it's the move that's going to secure you down the line. Before we move on to critical time, can we just talk quickly about the narrative for the vampires? Yes, I was hoping we would. I, I really enjoyed how much time we got with them. This is the first time since, was it the shapeshifter that we really got to meet one of our villains properly? Like even Meg is like pales in comparison to these vampires. So vampires are actually going to become very important in Supernatural. They're probably the monsters that we know the most about. We do get a very expositional guide to them, which again, kudos for being done well. If we look at Luther, what does he want? He wants to live free of hunters. He tells Kate that she shouldn't have killed Elkins and stolen the colt, even if it was to avenge his family. And he says, revenge isn't worth much if you end up dead. So again, that theme of revenge not being worth it keeps coming back. You said those words. I'm like, isn't that what Dean said to John? No, it is what he said to her. Damn, it fits both of them so well. Yes, it absolutely fits that vampires and Dean, a queer-coded character, would have similar <laughs> lines. It absolutely fits. So if we talk about Kate, she is also coded as a bisexual character. She's seen kissing Luther and then non-consensually kissing the girl 
tied up to part of the barn. I mean, that wasn't really necessary. The kiss was not necessary. This is the first same-sex kiss that we get in Supernatural, and it's a non-consensual one. You know, she could have just, like, brought up her cut wrist directly to the girl's mouth. But the decision to kiss her was deliberate, and so we'll talk about that a bit in Critical Time. Oh, we will, don't worry. And now let's think again. Who else does Kate kiss? Again, non-consensually? Dean! So he is quite literally being used as bait in that moment when she kisses him. One might say queer bait, but no moving on. I mean, if we definitely read into that side of vampires and the often, again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. It's much more critical time (laughs) stuff, but it says a lot on a queer Dean side, which we'll get into. Oh, certainly. Let's move on to critical time. In Critical Time, let's get the conversation started by just mentioning that this episode was written by John Sheban and Catherine Humphreys. So if you remember, John Sheban is actually the writer who gave us Skin, Hookman, Scarecrow, and The Benders. It makes a lot of sense, especially when you consider Skin and just how amazing of a villain that was, or a creature of the week, especially when compared to the vampires now. And Catherine, have we seen her writing before? No, we have not. We will in further seasons, but for now, this is our introduction to Catherine. Happy to see more female writers, which is always exciting. Yes, it is. For a show about the supernatural that started in 2005, the fact that they're introducing vampires only in episode 20 is a little strange because vampires... Vampires were all the rage at the time. I mean, they always sort of were, but at that time, Buffy had just finished in 2003. So people were very familiar with the lore of vampires. So it would have been easy to introduce them seamlessly into into the world of Supernatural much earlier. But... Mr. Kripke originally didn't want to include vampires at all because he wanted to differentiate from Buffy and Angel. And that's why their lore is so specific in Supernatural. Which I think does so many nice things. So I kind of alluded to this earlier, even just before my recap and a bit during it. Vampires are, mythologically, there are so many different legends about vampires. You look up vampires in any culture and you are going to find wildly different What stops them, how they act, how they get made, what their origins are. Even the fact that vampires, as we know them today, the most broad sense is a ripoff of another creature. Really? The modern modern day vampire is a succubus. Oh. There are literally stories about succubi in like Judaic religion that were then twisted a bit and that's where vampires came from. The implications of sexuality that is often tied to vampires and heck, even some of the like some of the first vampire stories, the big sexual no-no they got away with was lesbians. Vampires, as we hinted at already, are intrinsically tied to sexuality, LGBTQ+. Vampires are very moldable. And I feel like if you were going to say, hey, I want to introduce a thing that people kind of know, but I want to put my spin on it without appropriation or damaging some culture, vampires makes perfect sense. And again, they still do enough to play with the existing lore. We kind of get the, yeah, sunlight doesn't hurt them, but it's not pleasant. Yes, they sleep during the day and fight at night. 
yes, they do kind of work in small covens and are very sexually connected as they kind of talk, they mate for life, they pick a partner permanently, there's kind of an intrinsic bond with somebody. Everything, even like the second set of teeth coming out thing, they all kind of play nicely with the, we're giving you enough vampire that when we break the mold and do our vampires, you're not like, whoa, what the heck? The basics of vampires is that they need human blood to survive. They need to consume human blood in order to survive. And so for me, I mean, a lo- as long as you give me that for a basic vampire, I can, I can suspend this belief for the rest. Shall we dig a little bit into the specifics of these vampires? Oh, yes, please. To kind of do a quick bullet point list that you lovingly uh, crafted for us. They don't care about crosses. In fact, we see one of them wearing a cross in the episode. Sunlight doesn't kill them, but as we mentioned, does cause them a little discomfort, especially direct. Uh, stay through the heart. Totally bupkis. They do have a bloodlust. They do need fresh human blood, which is why they tend to keep the victims alive and bleed them for longer. I'm very intrigued by because it kind of goes in two different directions depending how you look at it, if we can go there quickly. On the one hand, you are keeping someone around almost like a food source. Mm-hmm. We've seen some of the people in this episode. They don't look like they're actively being tortured. They're being kept captive. They're almost more like cattle to them. Yeah, I was going to say, they're basically like a cow or like a chicken. Yeah. They want the milk and the eggs, but they don't want the human to die necessarily because they need their blood. And it's easier to use a human that you already have captive than to have to go out and hunt for another one. Which is where my second point comes in. Yes, you are taking one person and let's go worst case scenario, you are ruining this person's life and ultimately they are going to die as your captive. Not the best image for you, but by doing this, you're preventing yourself from killing other humans. Oh, it's very strategic, yes. It's strategic, but it's also, I don't want to say wholesome, but it's like the lesser of two evils. They're picking the one that causes the least amount of pain to the most people. I mean, something that we learn in other seasons is that they can also survive on cattle blood. I mean, you you know how I get about anything that touches like human beings' lives, right? So I definitely don't see this as wholesome, but I understand the point you're trying to make. I think wholesome is the wrong word. <laughs> At least they're not killing like one human per meal, I suppose, is the point you're trying to exactly. make. Exactly. Uh, They were, in fact, previously people. They're not a creature that came from nowhere. They are a human that was turned by drinking the blood of one of their own kind, which is something we've seen in previous lore. They can only be killed by beheading, which, again, a lot of lore does approve of and is very consistent. I like this. Once they get your scent, it's for life. Because that doesn't necessarily imply that they will hunt you down to kill you. It just means they can. Uh, The last two being they made for life and the namesake of the episode, Dead Man's Blood is like poison to them. Which is a very long way to go for your episode title, because I for so long was trying to figure out like what the Dead Man's Blood was. And then that out of nowhere, and I'm like, really? So when they do that, I like to to dig a bit deeper and think, okay, well, what does the dead man's blood represent? It's like the Achilles heel of the vampire. So if Mm -hmm. we're putting that onto our heroes, what are each of their Achilles heels? I think that that would be an interesting conversation to have. I think we've had part of it earlier already. And they have decided that they are stronger together. That the dead man's blood in this case was John hunting alone. Which is interesting, because when you first said that, my first thought was, like, what are each of their weaknesses? Let's just bullet point them real quick. And John's weakness is his boys. But is it, though? Because it becomes a strength in this episode. How to word this. (laughs) So, yes, ultimately, they work better together as a team because it's, I mean, mean, at the end of the day, three heads are better than one. It's, you know, it's it's six pairs of hands instead of two. In every way, the numbers are going to be a strength. And of course, having such well-trained fighters on your side, always a strength. But 
you know that in a situation where it's his life versus his kids or it's, you know, a matter of saving, it could be saving an entire town or saving just Sam or just Dean, you know he's going to pick his kids. But you don't think that that would happen if he was alone? No, because I could see John very much choosing the altruistic better option of saving more people, even if it meant losing somebody else. But as soon as it's his kids, that's where I think his judgment gets clouded. What I mean is, what makes you think that the big bad doesn't know about Sam and Dean? Oh, I mean, ultimately, yes. But if they're not in the picture, if they are literally a mono a mono fight, I'm picturing like the two of them on a plank of wood over a canyon fighting, um, very Gandalf and Balrog here. It's not like the demon can just go, oh, by the way, I've got Sam and Dean tied up in the back. Surprise. They were never in the picture. I understand that. But I think that like you're again, I think it's a bit underestimating your your opponent here that I think that's just the point that I'm trying to make that people and monsters, not necessarily all of them, they know about John. They know about Meg knows about the, the, the sons. So like there's word is starting to spread at this point to say that Sam and Dean are like John's weaknesses. I, I find like feeds into John's chosen one complex. I can't do this if you're next to me. <laughs> I hate that sort of rhetoric. It just oh, makes my like blood it. boil. I, I, I think, I mean, John spent his entire, like the, the boys' entire life training them for this. This is what he has trained them for. They are stronger together. And it's trying to do everything on your own or trying to do everything on his own that actually makes him vulnerable. And ultimately will be his demise. I was about to say something and that totally shifted my point. What? John trying to solve shit on his own is not the best attitude. So what I was going to say before you suddenly dropped that bomb on me was, so in that case, you're suggesting that his weakness is the fact that he thinks he's better off alone. Absolutely. It's his chosen one complex. So is that also Sam's weakness? <laughs> I would tend to think so, yes. Then what is Dean's weakness? <laughs> this is taking us both way too long to think of something. I think that Dean's weakness is thinking that he can solve everybody's problems. That he can be everything to everybody. And we find out that by doing that, actually, in later seasons, um, Dean loses parts of himself. So one last thing I do want to touch on, and you 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 alluded to it at the end of our story time section, and that is the sexual side of uh, what ha what happens in this episode. We do start with the two non consensual romantic moments we do see in the episode, both uh, Kate kissing the captive woman who I don't think we know her name, do we? Well, do you remember hearing her name at any point during the episode? So I don't think I do, but I think I saw her name in the credits. You think you saw her name in the credits? Like the, uh, I'm cheating here, the built-in Amazon ones that give you the IMDb. Aha, uh -huh. yes, you would see that. Do you remember that name? Jenny? <laughs> yes, it's Jenny. But Drew, why would she have a name if she's not named in the episode? Oh, does she become more relevant down the road? Apparently. Oh, <laughs> Oh, I'm intrigued. Because mm -hmm. obviously, yes, her and Kate get away. So, you know, revenge is a big theme. So if they murderized her, her loved one and they mate for life. <laughs> ooh, yeah, no, they're coming back. Good call. So, yes. So we have that first kiss and then we have the second one with Dean. 
So ultimately, we have a character who is, for the first time on screen, openly queer. We have evidence we literally see in within a few minutes of each other kissing a woman, not consensually, and then kissing Dean, also not consensually, so a lot of shading is there, but this is our first time we're getting this, and as you mentioned before, the, the idea of kissing Dean, who we've already thoroughly discussed being queer, does... Bring up some interesting uh, talking points. And as I said before, vampires are very often tied to being queer or just being openly sexual. What I thought was really interesting here is that, you know how you were talking about the vampire lore in this episode versus like what it has been in the past. One thing that's intrinsically linked to vampires, especially since the Victorian era, like you've discussed, is queerness. And that's something that's not usually openly discussed. It's always in the subtext. In fact, the vampires were written so that people could discuss their feelings on queer and more sexually prevalent creatures because you couldn't otherwise. You needed to mask it. So just for our listeners, we just want to make clear that today we're, that we know that there is a lot of information available about vampires and queerness, and especially with how it relates to supernatural. And we do plan on doing a more extensive mini-sode specifically about that. So today we're just discussing the episode itself and introducing the theme, but we will be talking about this more. So if you feel like you have uh, more questions once we're done, it's normal because we still do and we've decided to really investigate this a little bit more. But so like I said, the queerness of the vampires is always in the subtext, primarily also because it you could not, in the Victorian era, and up until very recently, you could not write openly queer characters. So it had to be hidden in the subtext, a little bit like what we were talking about with queer coding and the Hayes Code at the very beginning of, this, of the season. Here, it's very meta because th- what we're seeing is also a creature that has some very specific lore attached to them, but still, and some of it is very new, some of it we're not used to seeing, some of it is completely reinvented, some of it is made this way specifically to differentiate the product of Supernatural and another franchise, yet one thing that remains is the queer coding in the subtext. And it's it goes beyond subtext here because of the kiss on screen, I would argue. So even though it is never openly said Kate is queer or Kate is bisexual or pansexual, we can see that she is seen kissing men and women. So what does it say then that we're introducing a queer creature in the same episode as we're finding out about Dean having to suppress that part of himself for the peace of his family and that we're seeing one of these creatures kiss Dean? Oh, I didn't even draw the parallels and I hate it. (laughs) Dean becomes very, very linked with vampires in many ways. I just think that this, these are things to keep in mind when we're looking at this episode, and we're not, we're not going to find all of the answers tonight, but just keep in mind. So this week, we have a message that we have received on Instagram from Instagram user LeftDoorKnocker, and she writes, Hey, y'all talked about the music in this episode a bit. So the music in season one streaming services is different than the music played in the original episodes. In this episode, Shifter Dean's grotesque transformation is originally set to filters, hey man, nice shot, and it worked brilliantly. So the music that feels a little off this season, most of the time it has to do with that. 
This is super interesting because keep in mind that in the first season, Supernatural was owned directly by the WB. And then it moved on to the CW. So when it went to Netflix and Amazon Prime and all of these things, I'm assuming that there must have been some licensing issues with the music because mm-hmm. it's it's very true. If you're looking at the at the at some of the information online, whether it's on Supernatural uh, Wiki or or any of those places, IMDb, you're going to see a difference between. You know, you're going to see the music and then you're going to see like underneath, like in brackets, Netflix, because the music has had to be changed. And Left Door Knocker also mentions that in Faith, when the jogger is dying, they originally played Don't Fear the Reaper. And it's amazing. And on Netflix, it's not as powerful. So just for full disclosure, both you and I are watching... Uh, you're watching it on Amazon Prime, and I'm watching it using my iTunes, like the iTunes account that I have. I've bought those series, but not on DVD. I bought them on iTunes, and they are also changed in iTunes. And is this just for the first season, or is it the whole series? This is just for the first season. Okay, so I'd be curious to kind of go back and like maybe just on a personal level look at some of these songs just for myself just to see if there were any like moments that could have been changed or felt differently like i'll be very honest left door knocker i think i might just go back and watch that scene in faith and just play the song on my own itunes because i'd be curious to see how that feels thank you so much for your message yeah it kind of sent us down a little rabbit hole so thank you very much for pointing that out it's very important to know (laughs) and if anyone else has any suggestions for specific scenes where a song worked better in the original than the re-release let me know i'll Watch it and listen to the song at the same time and see how it makes me feel differently, if anything. (laughs) (laughs) I think we have our next episode of Canon or Fanon right here. (laughs) So, Drew, what would be your Crossroads deal for this episode? Once again, we have come to an episode that I really, really loved, but I couldn't really find anything too nitpicky with it. I think I would have just enjoyed... And I know we got a lot of time with the vampires. I think I would have just enjoyed more. I think I would have enjoyed learning the lore through them versus just being told it. I, I, and, I, and I can't, like, usually I like to come into these with more of a, like, and here's how I would change it. But I can't really think of a way of doing it naturally. Can't think of much to give up except for some of the passive aggressiveness in the episode, if that makes sense. So I, I see what you're saying. And the thing is, because they spent so long in the season waiting for John to show up or looking for John, now we're at a point where we have we have four episodes left, including this one, in order to wrap up the series. And so things had to happen quickly. But it couldn't happen so quickly that it would feel like the blow up between Sam and John was unwarranted. So there had to be some build up. And I think that that really, truly was the focus of the episode. And the funny thing is, now that you say that, I kind of had the thought earlier and didn't verbalize it. I feel like the leading up to the fight, like the arguments in the car between Sam and Dean that kind of happens and a few moments even before that when they're trying to get more information from John just felt unnecessary like yes i get it was there to kind of help exacerbate the situation to get to the blow up but i feel like it could have just been like unspoken and the blow up would have made just as much sense given the whole season up to this point i think 
that one of the goals was also maybe to hint at how intolerable the situation must have been between the two of them, like before Sam left. Unlike other things we've removed or I've removed, this definitely is something that does add a tangible value to the episode. But I think, in my opinion, the value of less exposition, more show-don't-tell with the vampires and building their lore would have made them feel more concrete and real and existing in the world versus just like a storybook where the aggravation, the frustration that Sam is feeling could have been conveyed in just a few smaller moments. Like even just like one quick, the meeting in the car and getting the letter, a we're hitting the road together and then a blow up right before they get to the vampires. Like it could have been a lot smaller and still gotten the point across. But at the end of the day, it still has a value. You're right. It does go to show what Sam's feeling. It helps to paint that picture. And I don't know if, the episode would have worked as well without it. I feel like it would have, but I could be wrong. What is your uh, crosshairs deal? We talked a little bit about Kate and how she's coded as a uh, queer character, uh, which is interesting because it's, you know, arguably only the second queer coded character that we meet on Supernatural after Dean. So you would think that I would be happy about that, but instead I am feeling a little bit bitter about it because of the non-consensual kisses that happen, particularly the one with the unnamed woman and or Jenny, because it's truly for the male gaze. Because if you remember that moment, uh, Luther, so Luther and Kate are making out and uh, Luther looks over at Jenny and says, oh, you like to watch, huh? So do I. And only then does Kate go over, you know, puts her blood in Jenny's mouth and then, or no, in her own mouth and then kisses Jenny. So that kiss, which was unnecessary, right? It was not a necessary kiss, was not only non-consensual, but for the gaze of a male character. So that has a lot of really, really, really harmful connotations that women who are attracted to other women, whether that's bisexual women, lesbian women, pansexual women, etc., are only doing this for attention or they're there to provide a show for the men around. And that that is incredibly harmful. And what we saw helped consolidate that idea that already exists within society and so I wish that we could actually have removed that done it differently I don't even care how but um, this is the kind of message that really does not belong on tv so to go back to a point that I made previously there's very clear ties between the original legends of vampires and how they were basically made over from the original legends of the succubus which is very much a creature that gains its powers through, like a vampire, but for sex, essentially. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know what a succubus or incubus is. So the idea of it being in some way sexual, the transformation into a vampire in that moment, I think could have been done well with time. You actually helped me with finding how I would have liked to see it. I would have liked to see it where perhaps Jenny is, first of all, Jenny's not captive. And she's truly being seduced by Kate, right? Um, 
where maybe Kate is offering up her blood as something that, you know, as a drug, like this will, and, and she says like, you're not going to be able to come down. So it's, it's mm-hmm. linked to that idea of getting high and, and consuming drugs. So perhaps that's something that could have happened. We could have had that kiss in a much different way. And again, not for Luther's gaze. Yeah. Especially when you tie into it. Cause it's funny when I actually originally, we, we glossed over it in my in the critical time because I felt we were running short, but I did put a note down of the sexualization of female characters in this episode, especially the villains. Kate wasn't even the one I was referring to initially. There is another female vampire who is unnamed. She is in a denim miniskirt, which I can only tell you because that's the majority of the time she's on screen, is focused on her butt in this denim miniskirt while she is sexually dancing for one of the other vampires who literally throws money at her. I mean, sex work is important and has room in society. So let's let's keep that in mind. Oh, yeah, I'm not I'm not diminishing the sex work side of it. I'm diminishing the fact that here we have a group of vampires who are hunting together like a family. And one of them still feels that I should present myself to this other male in my clan and get his money. It's like if you are truly a family in a pack that hunts together, this seems weirdly out of place. Yes, it absolutely does. And see, I hadn't even clocked that one. That's how upset I was about Kate. <laughs> I guess the only thing I left to ask is what would you give up though for that? I think that I would have actually given up some of the some of the interactions between the vampires. I didn't care about them as much as you did. You know what? I kind of get that. As much as I enjoyed them, I feel like they didn't do enough to be worth the screen time. Like I I think what I wanted was them to be worth the time we invested in them make that time worthwhile. But yeah, if they're just going to be what they were in the episode up till now, yeah, yeah, we could probably do without them. Not necessarily without them, but definitely less screen time or like more focus on on Kate Luther and Jenny and or unnamed woman. They exist, they're there, they're part of the clan, they, they get some talking lines, but let's really focus on the vampires whose story we're telling and using them to further the narrative. Exactly. Thank you for helping me formulate that. I'm glad I could. I, I feel like you spent so much time helping me make my words make sense. <laughs> the least I can do is do it for you once in a while, apparently. Thank you. <laughs> You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. This week, we'd like to thank Left Door Knocker for her Instagram message. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok using at carryingwayward. Subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for weekly content, including special episodes. Until next week. Carry on our wayward friends.